This is Customer Experience Leaders, a podcast produced by Rated. It's a show where we reveal the secrets of how great brands delight their customers. How your employees feel, how they operate, the way in which they interact internally has everything to do with then how they turn around and treat their clients. That's the voice of Chris Dyer. He's the author of a new book called The Power of Company Culture. I'm your host, Adam Jaffrey. Hey there, I'm Michael Momsen. So, Michael, Chris is an expert on employees and on company culture. And we've spoken a few times on this podcast before about the impact of company culture. I, I mean, I think it's it's intrinsically linked, right? We haven't come across one single company that delivers great exceptional customer experience and hasn't thought deeply about great company culture. So, what I really, really like about our conversation with Chris, he isn't just consultant and author around company culture, but he runs a team, uh, a remote team of 30-odd staff and 1,300 consultants. So, he really lives and breathes this stuff, which really, really comes to life in the interview. We talked to Chris about why culture is so important, tips for how to build a strong company culture, and how to measure and improve the way that employees are interacting with each other. Yeah, and so we kicked off the interview by asking Chris to frame company culture. How important is it? So it's one of the like really big things. It's, I, I think it's the thing. Now, a lot of people could argue that having a great product or a great service is sort of a necessary thing. And I agree with that to a certain extent, but you could also go sell pencils, right? And that's pencils aren't really sexy. They're not the most important thing in the world. We probably could live without a pencil. And you could still go there and be successful or lose all your money if you don't have a great culture. So for me, culture is everything about what supports the entrepreneur or the CEO's dream and ultimately brings employees that satisfaction and worth that they need. You spend so much time at work. You spend more time at work than you do with your family, with your spouse, with your kids, with your band, whatever. And yet that's the place where most people are miserable. So I think culture is everything as it relates to your work and your life. That's interesting. I was reading a a children's business book the other day that was explaining business for 10-year-olds. And it talked about actually the uh, the change from the industrial age where people were viewed as literally cogs in a machine. You're there to do a task. And then now in the information Mm -hmm. age, we sort of became a little bit more like, actually, you know, we probably need to look after our people. But in many respects, we're now in, in the culture age, right? In terms of where culture is now viewed as more important than even sometimes, you know, brand, or it can even be part of the uh, the way that people even view the brand now that, you know, people look at Airbnb right. now because they're famous about their culture. I'd love to hear about how you've seen this shift in the market as, you know, everyone is becoming more aware of culture. You know, I'd love to sort of to hear a little bit about that. So this is really where... Uh, I think I've been able to contribute to the conversation in that the greatest companies are getting it and they're making the shift and they're making it a part of what they're doing. But everybody else is still stuck in the industrial revolution. They're stuck in how they view uh, motivation, how they view management, how they view people. And maybe it's not so horrible as you're going to go work 18 hours in a sweatshop, but we still expect a lot of companies saying, I expect you to be at your desk and to do your job because I'm paying you money and love it. And that's a bunch of crap. A lot of managers still think, and Daniel Pink has done a lot of great work around this, but talking about, if I just pay you 25 more cents, you can do a little bit more work, right? If I give you this bonus, you're going to somehow magically be able to figure out this horribly complex problem, right? right? That you need a team to solve and you could get great culture to solve. So, so to answer your question, yes, it's happening, but not, not fast enough. And I'd love to hear about your story and how you 
became the culture uh, guru and how you became so passionate about it. What uh, what got you into this space? Sure. So I don't know if this is like any other great Hollywood story, but um, I, I was doing it all wrong, right? I was doing culture absolutely positively wrong. And I everything I learned was, as I, t- I talked about a second ago, a little bit from the Industrial Revolution, a little bit of that just society sort of giving you these ideas, right? And just don't know any better. And then also this idea about, I, I did a lot of coaching. So when I was in college and kind of got myself through college that way, I coached swim teams, water polo teams, soccer teams, basketball teams. And that dynamic works with kids. And then you take that same principle and you take it to work and you expect it to be your management philosophy. It's pretty hard to get people to do push-ups when they don't make their <laughs> deadline, right? <laughs> Or to go run laps or whatever. And suddenly you realize that you're very inept in your ability to really get people. Maybe you can use some of the rah, 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 and the happy parts of a sports culture, but you can't do it when it comes to discipline. So really, as it relates to my story back when we had our big recession, 2008, 2009, I went back and said, you know, our company is not going to make it if I don't make a change. I got to do something. I didn't know what that something was. And I don't know if you remember that movie, The Beautiful Mind, when Russell Crowe is writing all over the mirror or the window. He's the, you know, it's that moment when you realize that the movie has unfolded what's really happening. Well, I was doing that on my glass windows in my office. And my staff was sort of freaking out. And I, I just wrote down like everything I wanted to change, everything that was working, everything that wasn't working. And I realized that I was the bottleneck, that our problem was me. And the way our company had grown, I was trying to help and I was trying to mentor and I was trying to be control at some level. And so everyone came to me with every important decision and no one made any decision without getting my input, approval or blessing. And I was in the way and I went, okay, I got to change this. And that started me on this journey of asking questions and reading books and interviewing people and trying to find out what they did, all to find out that. There's this amazing a bit of, of, of information out there and a way to do it that's better that I never knew. And that sort of took me to student, which then took me later on to, you know, contributing to the narrative as well. I assume when you say that you were the problem, I don't think you're necessarily at a broad sense saying, you know, Chris Dyer is a problem. When you think about other companies, there is a bottleneck that's maybe the central person, the manager, the CEO, the founder, right? So, assuming that that euphemism is true broadly, what do you do about it? So there's a cool place in San Diego, California called the Safari Park. And it is a place where they have the prey animals running freely in an area where you could observe them from around a very large area, right? So for someone in California to sort of see us almost a Serengeti type setting, it's pretty amazing. And then they have the, the predator animals can see the prey, but they can't get to each other. Really kind of cool. And you can stay overnight at this park with your kids in a tent which is awesome until at three o'clock in the morning when the lions start roaring and you forget that you're <laughs> sleeping in a tent and start freaking out. But so at night you go by the campfire and the scientists bring out the animals for the kids to touch and pet and all these cool things. And they brought out this little animal called like a Jeroboa. And I remember it had really floppy ears like a rabbit and it had legs like a kangaroo. And they asked the kids and the, and the parents, what do you think this is? And of course, it's a rabbit, it's a kangaroo, it's a marsupial. There was a couple of funny jokes about maybe there was some Barry White and they decided to have a baby. And now this was a hybrid <laughs> of the two animals, right? Mm-hmm. And the scientist said, well, as it turns out, it's neither. 
And she said, in fact, this is the problem we have that as human beings, we can only take the facts and things in our head to explain what we don't know. And it is sort of our problem as human beings that we often don't say, I don't know, I need to go and observe, I need to go find out. It's just, uh, the other example is that someone walks into a room, the light turns off, right? And they say, well, the light bulb burned out, or there's a ghost. And no one says, well, maybe the electricity went out, maybe the cord is bad. There's a thousand reasons why that light bulb turned off. And people who are inquisitive of culture, who want to make a change in their company, have to be willing to say, there could be another way to do this. And I need to go and find out. I need to bring in a consultant, an expert, I need to go read books. I need to listen to great podcasts like this one or anyone else who's talking about this conversation and be willing to say, I don't know what I don't know. Because often they say, well, I, I know all these things. I know I'm supposed to manage. There is no solution. When you had that aha moment, what was it that made you realize that it was you? And like, how did you connect that to culture? Was there an aha moment in a book that you read? Was it when you listed all the things and you realized you were creating that culture? Like, how did you go from the, oh, shit, like it's me to, oh, it's this culture thing and then going on this journey of understanding and and learning more about culture? So so the, oh, shit moment, I came to on my own and I was listing the things that were wrong and I was listing things like, People aren't making decisions. They're, you know, no one's coming to me with with uh, innovative ideas. They're not thinking on their own. And then I started breaking down why that is. And it was like, oh, well, they're coming to me constantly. Their habit is to come to me. Mm-hmm. Why why come up with an idea if the boss is just going to tell you what to do anyways, right? So uh, I didn't do that intentionally. It was just sort of how we evolved, and it was un- a, sort of a negative, unintentional. But then I said, once I realized that, I went back immediately to my sort of mentors and people I trusted and said, I think this is the problem. Tell me what you do. Tell me how you would handle this. And then they started just, I, I couldn't write fast enough. I couldn't take enough notes. And it was, why didn't anybody tell me this? You know, it was, they, they thought it was common knowledge. And of course, their companies were vastly more successful than mine at that moment. And it made, it made sense where the difference was. I'm really interested then, Chris, in once you identify the problem, what do you do next? How do you actually shift the culture? So there's a saying I heard recently that I love, you have to crawl before you can walk before you can run. So go back and start having this conversation. Pick a few books or uh, thought leaders, watch some TED Talks, and, and maybe pick a thing, pick something that you want to do. Now, in a perfect world, you would bring in a consultant, and this is something I've done for, for companies, and we would do like a master blueprint, right? Let, let's, let's dream about what the, your perfect culture looks like, right? How do you become this thing? Because we know Google and we know Facebook, and we know you can name all these great companies, these cultures that people kind of freak out about, right? Or talk about all the time. We're not probably going to go back and replicate that. We're going to come back in a perfect world and say, what's right, the right thing for us? How do we become our own Nike and our own? Southwest Airlines or whatever it may be. How do we become our own version of that our own way? And that starts with, it could be a blueprint. That's the best way to do it. If you want to, you know, fast forward this process, the leaders in the organization would blueprint this and then get buy-in and talk with your, your staff. But another way that maybe a small company might do it is to say, what's the one thing that we could really focus on that would make a big difference? And let's start there. Let's have that crawl to walk moment. And that could be, 
Maybe our company's not very transparent. Maybe our company's not positive. Maybe we're not very good listeners. Whatever this thing is that we think we can do better. And that kind of starts the conversation, starts breaking things down. You start getting people to contribute. And I think that will start to move you in the right direction. You mentioned, you know, uh, you use books and TED Talks and that kind of thing to, to, I guess, you know, build these resources. Are there a few that you can recommend? Yeah, um, I love, there's a few books that I, on my journey of, uh, in here, I've probably read a good 200, but there's a few that, that stick <laughs> out, you know. To Turn the Ship Around by David Marquet is a wonderful book about his experiences as a nuclear submarine captain. In fact, that guy could go from worst to best in that environment is amazing. So that's a great one. If you like audiobooks, it's a fun one to listen to. You know, anything Daniel Pink is great can kind of help to start unprogram some of the things you think you knew were truths but weren't truths and do that. I love Adam Grant. Certainly, Give and Take was a huge one for me to understand kind of internally, how people might work and how they might interpret different things differently. I'm a giver. And so to learn that there was a way to mitigate takers, (laughs) like save my life, you know what I mean? Because I always had people coming to me and asking and asking and asking, and I kept giving and giving and I would, you know, be on empty a lot. So Mm -hmm. uh, that's certainly a great book. And, And then if anyone else needs some help with sort of maybe this is sort of quasi culture, but also if you need help being better at what you're trying to do and be more effective, I just read a book called Work Clean. That is probably the most expensive book I've ever read. And what I mean by that is I have redone my office. I have redone my closet. <laughs> I have completely reorganized my home. Um, and I am not a person that anyone would say is organized. I'm not a clean up my desk before I leave the office. I'm the stack of paper person. The notes are somewhere in there. I know it, you know. And so that really helped me create a process. I realized that no one taught me how to be organized, personally organized, and that really helps. Chris, before when you were talking about the process that you went through to kind of shift your approach within your own business, one of the things you mentioned earlier was that, you know, uh, you worked with a consultant to figure out what this master blueprint is, and then, you know, you kind of start to figure out a way to implement it. One risk that I see with that and one risk that I see with initiatives that are similar in large organizations is that it's still like a top-down initiative and, you know, the CEO and and the the executive level decide this, hey, we're going to do this new culture, we're going to do this new whatever, but they never really get buy-in from the broader organization and they never really involve them in the process of actually developing it. So, how do you involve people throughout the organization and get their buy-in when you're actually rolling it out? So when I have helped companies with this, this is what has been effective for us is we, I'm a true believer that in most cases, top down doesn't work, right? You need a combination of top down, bottom up, peer to peer. However, your leaders in a great culture need to be able to lead and your employees need to be able to do their best work and be effective. So in that context, a CEO or the entrepreneur or senior leadership team, it is up to them to on a very broad level, decide what is our purpose? Why do we do what we do? What is our mission statement? You know, get these big concepts nailed down in a way which they can agree on and it makes sense, right? And aligns with our business goals and everything else, all the the people involved. But then they have to go back and work this with different parts of the organization and have these conversations and ask those questions. Does this make sense? Does this align? And, and get a general consensus 
with your best employees, right? Your A players, your B plus players, because your C players and your B minus players are probably going to tell you this is a terrible idea because they don't want that structure. They don't want that passion in place. They want to keep hiding, you know, at the bottom. But your best player, your best, you know, employees, this is where you want to have that discussion and be willing to pivot. So I've often told people, you got to come up with this great blueprint. Be prepared to pivot on some of these because your employees are going to come back with better versions of it. You're going to get them excited about it. And they really have to be a part of this because if they're not, you're right. If I show up tomorrow and say, we're all about fill in the blank and I haven't gotten their buy-in, they're only going to go along with it because I'm signing their paycheck. But they're, yeah. not going to, they're not going to make it a part of our success. We're not going to be the next Google, whatever. We're not going to be this incredible company if they're not living and breathing it too. So, Chris, welcome to the quick fire round where Michael and I ask you questions and you have only 10 seconds to answer them. Are you up for the challenge? I'm up. I'll do it. I might, it may not be the truth, but I'll do it. All right. <laughs> uh, if you take too long, we'll bring the buzzer out. If you can't think of an answer, we'll bring the buzzer out and we can judge at the end how well you did. Uh, and Michael and I are going to trade blows. So, your time starts at the end of the first question. Who is your personal mentor? Kim Shepherd. She's the CEO of Decision Toolbox. And uh, what brands do you look up to? Oh, boy, that's tough. I think Southwest Airlines is a big one. Uh, certainly Google is another one as well. Uh, I really like those brands. What job did you learn the most at? I think uh, running a restaurant taught me a lot about people and how you treat people. What skill are you terrible at? Oh, I am... T- boy, what skill? Um, I'm terrible at... Uh, my handwriting is atrocious. You could have been a doctor in another life. Yes. <laughs> I was smart enough to be a doctor, yes, but my handwriting is terrible. Chris, what channel of media do you learn the most from? You know, written, audio, video, what channel? Uh, I think audiobooks. I mean, that's where I spend most of my time is really digesting information, you know, that way. What's your favorite uh, hobby outside of work? Uh, I play in a band. I'm the lead guitarist in the band. Oh, so, nice. What type of music? Uh, alt rock. So, sort of. Pearl Jam meets uh, Evanescence. Chris, what's your guilty pleasure? Beer. (laughs) Shitty beer in large volumes. (laughs) If you didn't have to sleep, what would you do with all that extra time? Uh, I would learn how to paint. Really? Interesting. That's That's a new one. Haven't heard that one. This is a bit of a contentious question, Chris. Is it cantaloupe or rock melon? Oh, it's cantaloupe. Hey, yes, I agree. Michael, are you cantaloupe or rock melon guy? Uh, I'm rock melon, yeah. I think that's the Australian. Nah. Australian yeah. And now in Colorado, it's called Rocky Ford. So it's the third name for it as well. It's kind of a famous what? variation. Yeah. Oh, wow. We're adding an element to the mix. I just want to say, Michael, it's a two to one on the cantaloupe for today's podcast. So. <laughs> in your book, The Power of Culture, you have these seven pillars uh, of success and I was even you know, looking through the reviews and some people are like, it's so easy to remember and implement the seven pillars. It'd be good if you could maybe share a bit of an overview of these seven and how you see these being applied to businesses. Sure. So the book is The Power of Company Culture and there are seven pillars. So the book is broken up into three pieces. The, the first, uh, three parts. The first part is where should we be right now? If you want to at least be good, 
what are the things you should be doing? And I talk about Simon Sinek and we talk about Adam Grant. We talk about Daniel Pink and all of that. So what's our baseline for good? Then the next part is the great. How do you be great? And there's seven things that I noticed through my radio show, through my interviews, through everyone I talked to, the books I read. They weren't always using these words. The vocabulary was sometimes different, but they were consistently awesome at these seven things. And we'll go through those and then I'll yeah, tell you so what the third one We're on the edge of our seats. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the seven things to be so, awesome at. <laughs> yeah, seven things to be awesome at. Um, the first one is transparency. So the more transparent we can be, and there's a million ways you can go with this. Right. Financially transparent with your, your staff, right? Public companies have to be, but a lot of private companies never tell anybody how they're doing. It's a big mystery. Mm. Transparent about goals. Do, do you know what your what each team's goals are? Do you know what your goals are? Do you know what it means to be successful? As your boss said, if you do these 10 things, you're a rock star. Mm. Believe it or not, people don't know. Like over and over again, people don't know what they're supposed to do. They tell them what their job is. They hand on a job description. They don't really know what success looks like. Do they know what your BHAG is, that big, hairy, audacious goal? Is your company trying to become a billion-dollar market cap? Is your company just trying to go to a million dollars? What's that big goal that senior management's pounding on all the time, but maybe to the frontline employee, they have no idea. So transparency is a big one. The second one is positivity. And I'm a big advocate for and a big believer in appreciative leadership or appreciative inquiry. So focusing on what we're doing well, focusing on our strengths, focusing in on using vocabulary and wording that is positive. So do you walk around saying we're going to problem solve today? Because that's negative. Or do we say there are places we have an opportunity to do better, right? The next time you're on a call with a really ticked off client, ask them what you're doing right. Right? You watch real quick. They're going to calm down. They start telling you the 15 things you're doing right. Awesome. Thank you. That's an opportunity for us to do this other thing you've been bringing up to us better. So, positivity is huge. Measurement. So, the best companies in the world measure everything. Lazo Block wrote another great book. I think it's called Work Rules. Uh, he's the head of HR for Google. And in that book, he says Google measures things so well, they measure what they measure. <laughs> uh, and I, I love that. <laughs> I laughed out loud when I read that. And so for us, I talk in the book about Agile and Scrum and all sorts of different systems. Pick whatever system you want. I love Scrum, but whatever system you want, as long as it's not waterfall, decide on a system, <laughs> decide on a, a way to measure how people are doing, right? Is it obvious what success is? And we talked about the transparency, but and how do you measure that? So many companies manage based on popularity, manage on good-looking people get promoted. Uh, say the most effective, and they manage on how many staple clicks they hear and how many times they walk past the office and how many paper clips they, they hear activity, right? That's a, oh, they must be busy. That, that, that's not it. I have a completely uh, virtual organization. I don't ever see them except at the holiday party, right? Or at the barbecue. I have to know how they're doing based on some quantifiable thing that isn't me seeing them or whether or not they kiss my butt at the water cooler. Um, and so that's really important. Uh, the next one is acknowledgement, it's pillar four. So the greatest company in the world in the world have a way to say thank you, to make sure that everyone who deserves acknowledgement gets acknowledgement. Not just the big extroverts like us guys who like to probably can very easily tell the world how awesome we are and get plenty of praise. 
but also the introverts, right? That everyone in the organization who deserves it is getting that thank you, pat on the back. The next one is uniqueness. So how do you celebrate your uniqueness as a company and and talk about that? That's great for your talent retention, for your recruiting. Uh, It's how you sell your clients, but also celebrating the uniqueness inside of your organization, right? Your staff. What's cool about your staff? And are you talking about that? And do you know what what they're into? And, And if that's part of the conversation, it really makes a big difference. Then we also have listening. So great cultures know how to listen. And they also know how to effectively be heard. One of my favorite things to ask people is when you you hear someone having a conversation and they start to talk, do you immediately have the three things in your head that you're going to respond to? Or are you listening to understand them? Because I, I guarantee when they're done, if you're listening to understand, your responses will come to you. <laughs> you don't have to save them in your head and then stop listening. So you know, those are some of the pillars that the greatest you know cultures are really thinking about and doing. Uh, and really making a part of their, their organizations. Great. And do we have to buy the book to get the seventh one? <laughs> I, I think so. I think so. <laughs> I love it. So, Chris, I wanted to ask, you know, culture I think we've established is is quite important in, in this respect. And you talked about measurement there. I want to kind of drill into that a little bit. How do you monitor culture within an organization and how do you measure company culture? So, there's a couple of ways that we do it that I, I really like. Um, first of all, I absolutely hate the annual review. If you're doing annual reviews, you suck. Go back to your company and fix that right now. You should be doing check-ins, which means you should be having a conversation at the very least every month with all of your direct reports about how you're doing, right? how they're doing and what's happening. If it's not weekly, I mean, but monthly is the minimum. If you have too many reports, if you're one of those people that's got 50 direct reports, that's way too many, but you got to do quarterly, then do quarterly. But Annual reviews are terrible and you just don't get, you can't move company culture and you can't understand how your staff is doing if you're not getting them more often. Secondly, I hate the traditional survey that they send out once a year, you know, with all these questions. <laughs> First of all, they're completely ridiculous. Nobody fills them out. But if they do, it takes senior leadership three months to figure, to read through it, to ter- you know, understand it. Three more months to come up with a plan on how to actually identify and to resolve the issues. It's been six months since I filled the thing out. I'm out. I'm gone, right? You've already lost your best people. So what I suggest companies do is one question a week. Take your survey, take your 52 questions, and do it once a week, just that one question at a time. Your rates of people actually participating will be minor in the 90 percentile. People have suggested to your 80, 90 percentiles average. Your employees will give you deep, thoughtful answers because you're only asking them to answer one question. And you can really make changes, right? If, if you're getting back from everyone that this, this thing is a problem, right? Or no one's listening to me or customer service is killing us. You know, I, I sort of love to ask questions like, what's the biggest thing getting in your way? At least once a year, if not twice, I ask, how am I personally, Chris Dyer, getting in your way for you doing your best work? And here people do too. And so I can make changes, right? Managers can make changes very quickly based on the answers to one question. And so that's how we monitor. That's how I suggest people start by monitoring to get that constant and frequent and easy feedback. It seems to me like as a senior leader in an organization to make sure that company culture is alive and thriving and positive and generating profits for the business, 
you need to eat a bit of humble pie. You need to swallow your ego a little bit. Do you have any strategies on how to do that? Yeah. I mean, swallowing your ego a little bit, I guess it depends. So if you're if you're awesome with what you do, I don't know. I mean, that's sort of why you're in the company. So I think a little a little bit of confidence and a little bit of swagger is not a bad thing. But it, it can't overrun everybody else, right? So we talked about that uniqueness component. You gotta make sure that you're also celebrating and talking about know what makes everyone else on your team cool and what are they bringing to the table that's awesome. But what you need to be doing is to listen. So it's great if you're the superhero of IT, right? You're the best CTO in the world. That's cool and all. But if you're not talking to your people and you're not hearing them, um, there was a big study done and I apologize, I forget the name of who conducted it. It was like 8,500 companies, 500,000 employees were surveyed. This is a 2017 study. And the number one factor for employee engagement for non-managers was whether or not they believed they were being heard at work. That's it. So if you're too egotistical to ask your staff what's what's happening, right? And how can we get better? Where can we put our focus? That's what's going to get in your way. Talking about culture transformation, it's it's a hot topic. You mentioned the book, Turn the Ship Around. Actually, I was at Microsoft during the Obama to uh, Satya transition. And, you know, Satya's done a phenomenal job in turning Microsoft's culture around, you know, they're, they're now a darling child of, of Wall Street. I remember in a, in a, in a company, All Hands, Satya talked about that, that actual book, that Turn the Ship Around book, helped influence him. And it's now a really, really hot topic, right? Whether it's a new leader that comes in that wants to transform the culture in their team, you know, whether it's an organization that has the aha moment that you had that realized, fuck, like our culture is really a shit house and, you know, we really need to take this seriously. And that's, you know, why I use language like that because it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's <laughs> yeah. a serious moment, right? It's, it's like, it's, it's, it's a really big deal. No doubt you get called in uh, to help with some of this, this transformation and, and culture is probably right. the hardest thing. I mean, it's that famous saying, culture eats strategy for breakfast, right? <laughs> you could have the best strategy, but, you know, if your culture is shit house, then you're going to go nowhere with it. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, how do you pull off transformation uh, of culture? Because it's probably one of the most difficult things to do um, and would love to, love to get your thoughts on that. I mean, there's, we could probably spend the next 32 days straight talking through all the things that we could do, right? There's a lot of things we can do. But some of the simple things, um, I, I would highly suggest uh, The Undoing Project, great book that was written, okay. talks about um, Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman and the work they've done around cognitive biases. And there's so many great lessons that come out of that book. They really get into making sure people are in the right frame of mind, right? How you present this information. So let me give you a couple examples. If you walk into a room at 10.30, 11 o'clock in the afternoon, and you now are expecting people to be completely open to you and your ideas, they're actually cranky. They're actually, their blood sugar is low, and what they need is food. So if you want people to, to be open to an idea, I'm not saying they're going to accept, but if you want to listen to be open to your ideas and open to your thoughts about what you need to do, they can't be hungry. They need to be fed. So get them a snack, get them donuts, get them a pizza. It makes a big difference. Number two, don't meet in a conference room that could also be staged as a meat locker that's so cold and people are so uncomfortable that all they're thinking about is how uncomfortable they are, right? They need to be in the right setting, in the right environment, 
to be willing to listen to you. And I think we forget so often, we shove people in a room, we shove them in, or we get them on these mega conference calls, and we haven't set it up ourselves for success by just dealing with some very basic human things. One other thing that I got, we talked, you brought up David Marquet and turned the ship around. One of the awesome things that I got from him that may help in this regard as well, he has this concept called designating the devil. And what you do is you take these cards and you, so if you maybe you're going to meet with 10 people, get a deck of cards and on two of them put an X or give them the Joker or some card that's identifiable and say, you get that card, it's your job, don't tell anybody, your job to argue, right? to be the devil's advocate in this conversation. Oh, nice. And what, I, and what I love about this is we all, when at the end of it, I ask everyone, who do you think the devil is, right? Who do you think <laughs> the two devils are? They always get one right, and they always get the second one wrong because everybody else starts arguing. They feel free to argue and to say that this is a stupid idea if it's a stupid <laughs> idea because somebody else has already said it's a stupid idea. That's awesome. And so I love, that's a way to start fostering a real conversation. Yeah, typically it's usually the same devil's advocate each time. It's that outspoken person who, you know, tears down the practicality of it, or maybe they have a slightly pessimistic nature, but then you can can sort of tune out from that person uh, because they're always coming up with something. But in this scenario, when you're sort of shuffling around who plays that role, uh, and it's great because I actually think what you're trying to do is you're trying to find blind spots, right? And you're trying to... Right. encourage this rigorous, radical, candid conversation internally. That's, that's an awesome tip. And I'm also reinforcing with my staff, that I want them to argue. I want their real opinion. And that's an important part of culture mm. because it, they need to feel safe. They need to be heard. They need to, to feel like they can give me that. The one adjustment I did make that exercise I think is important is I had to promise, for at least for my staff, if you got the devil card, that I would allow you to say the things you did like at the end of the exercise. Oh, nice. Because that, that was the feedback I got from them that they felt like, I really agreed. I thought this was a good idea. You told me to be the devil. I did my job <laughs> as a devil, but like, I actually really like this idea. I wanted, and I, wanted, I, wanted to, I wanted to switch at the end. I wanted to switch at right. the end to say I'm on board. <laughs> so at the end, I had, to, I had to let them give me their truth. Awesome. Feeling, so. I like that. I like that. <laughs> Chris, um, I think a nice way to kind of wind this interview up would be to come full circle and talk about how culture impacts on the customer. Ultimately, this is a customer experience podcast. And yeah, I'd just like to throw it over to you. And, and, you know, what I'd like to know is what impact does having a great culture have on the end customer? I think it's the number one impactor on, on the customer experience. How your employees feel, how they operate, the way in which they uh, interact internally has everything to do with then how they turn around and treat their clients, how they know how to treat your clients, um, how they're able to navigate and create opportunities to solve real issues for your for companies. And if you just look at any of the companies that we would think of, right, that are great at the customer experience, and certainly I know you you guys know Zappos. I'm sure that one has come up before. I, I don't know if you know, Nordstrom's is pretty famous in the States as a department store that has a great client experience. I mean, there is no sort of uh, surprise that their culture is so tied to that client experience. There are a lot of companies where the client experience isn't the number one factor for the success of their company, right? I guess if you're building software, you want your clients to be happy, but you're not interacting with them in the same way maybe a retail organization interacts with their buyers, right? There, there are certainly differences and complexities there. But 
unless you're a one-man shop, unless you're just you and your cousin Billy, get, you know, at a at a local candy shop. I mean, you have to have a real process and a real intentional way in which you feed your company culture that if you want it to then translate properly to your clients. Chris, thank you so much for coming on the show. We we had so much fun. I should mention while we were chatting or before, I made sure the team got a copy of your, your book. So we'll be flicking through that, The Power of Company Culture, where you've got those seven pillars of culture success. Now, do you want me to give you the seven? I'll give you the seven. For the people who stuck around to the end. <laughs> Anyone who stuck around the end, I'll Love give it. the seventh away. All right. Number number seven is mistakes. So the great, greatest, greatest cultures know how to leverage and deal with mistakes. Amazing. Thanks so much, Chris. Thank you, Adam. Thank Thanks, you, Michael. Chris. Really appreciate you having me. All right. Awesome. What an amazing chat we had with Chris Dyer about company culture. Yes. Long overdue in many regards. Yeah. I remember back in episode number one, we had uh, we had Ray Gillenwater on the show and I've got a, a quote from him actually here. He said, companies that put customers first have it backwards. Employees come first. And, uh, and ever since then, we've kind of been dancing around this idea of culture with different guests and it's kind of come up a couple of times. So, it's great to kind of dive into it. Yeah. Bring in a culture guru. And I would say that it's probably not our first and only episode on this. You know, we'll want to take this from uh, different angles and different perspectives. Absolutely. So, let's run through our key takeaways from the interview. Michael, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, sure. I mean, I loved all seven of uh, the pillars and the one that really stood out for me because I think it's kind of foundational. Like, if you don't get this one right, then it's kind of impossible to do the other ones. So, if I sort of think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, this really is, you know, safety and and, and basic water and food and that is having transparency across the organization and transparency around how you're doing, like where you're going. Just having that culture of transparency then allows you to do these you know, other things on top. One of the takeaways that I really loved uh, was when uh, Chris was talking about, you know, how he was battling this kind of idea of company culture internally and him being the the kind of the barrier. And uh, he said, one thing that we don't do enough is say, I don't know. Mm. He, he was kind of making the point that there are other ways to do things and you need to to listen to people and really listen to your staff and other people in the company not just to know when it's your turn to talk, but listen to actually understand what they're saying, right? And that's really important. So, being open about the things you don't know and actually listening to people to, to get that feedback is really important. And what I like about uh, the conversation with Chris as well, just we, we didn't touch on it in the interview, but he actually runs a successful company that focuses on screening out job applicants. You know, they're a team of almost 30, a remote team. So, he doesn't just live in consulting land. You know, he's actually living and breathing and running this. And I think they have about 1,600 contractors as well. So, you know, when, when he talked about this, uh, these points, they weren't just academic. You could sort of feel that, you know, he, he's, he's really sort of learned the hard way on these ones. And that sort of takes me to my, my second point, which was not going and putting your team through survey hell uh, and the annual reviews and it becoming something that's bigger than Ben-Hur and everyone loathes doing. And sort of moving more towards these regular check-ins, these micro surveys of, you know, a couple of questions or one question a week. There's a couple of great tools, by the way. He, he didn't reference any, but just if any are interested, there's there's a company in Perth called 6Q that, that do this. Uh, a company in Melbourne that I really like called Culture Amp that focus more on these sort of micro questions about how your team are feeling. And I thought this was that was a really, really good takeaway. The next one that I really loved was 
again, it was a really practical one. And uh, it was when Chris was telling us about the uh, the devil's advocate card. Super fun idea, I think. I love this one. It, it's like, it's it's really fun uh, for the people involved. And it's kind of, it actually creates a culture, like a microculture within that meeting room of being able to take different points of view and argue and have a bit of fun with it as well, right? The last takeaway that I have was also a super practical one. And it's something that I hadn't really thought about that much, which is putting a bit of thought into the state of mind of the team and the people that you're talking to, especially when you're delivering something you know pretty important, like, hey, we want to have a crack at this new culture thing, or we want to implement this new thing. And just thinking about the physical location, you know, is it in that cold boardroom and it's near the end of the day and people are hungry and they just sat through a financial boring update and then you're trying to do like some sort of rah-rah important cultural change, you know, ensuring that there's, there's food there and that the experience is set and the tone is right. So, let's sum up the takeaways. What was your first, Michael? Yeah, I think the foundation to all great culture really is radical transparency. The next one is make sure when you're listening, you're listening to understand so that you actually know what's going on. Yeah, no, that's great. And the third one for me was avoid survey hell and annual check-ins and go for these micro-regular check-ins. The next one was practical again. It's uh, this devil's advocate card. Create ways for people to disagree in a playful way. Finally, really thinking about the state of mind of your audience and ensure that you take them on your journey. Beautiful. Well, this was a great discussion with Chris Dyer. Make sure you check out his book. If you'd like to connect with Michael or myself, LinkedIn is the best way to do that. So, you can follow me, Adam Jaffrey. And you can find me on LinkedIn. Simply search Michael Momsen, M-O-M-S-E-N. Great. We'll speak to you next time. Thanks. See ya. Thanks for listening. Customer Experience Leaders is a co-production of Rated, the market leader in on-the-spot customer feedback, and Wavelength, a full-service podcast agency for brands. This episode was produced by Christopher Lawson and me, Adam Jaffrey. It was also edited and mixed by Christopher Lawson. Our theme music is by Icolix, Peter Cooley, and The Shrugs. If you like this episode, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you'd like to find a link to any of the resources we mentioned in today's episode, we've included those in the show notes. You can find them in your podcasting app now or head to customerexperienceleaders.com. And finally, if you operate a business or work in marketing or operations or customer experience, and you'd like to get a better idea of how customers are interacting with your brand, the team at Rated know how to do that. You can book a time with them to discuss how they can help you meet your customer experience goals. Just head to rateitapp.com. That's R-A-T-E-I-T-A-P-P.com. I'm your host, Adam Jaffrey. Thank you so much for listening. We produce this show every fortnight. So, we'll speak to you in two weeks.